Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Supervalue Insurance. Offering sound advice for your car, home and travel insurance needs. Tweet at Miriam O'Call. Well, Daphne Caruana Galizia was a courageous campaigning journalist in Malta, a woman who exposed many stories of corruption and who was threatened many times with legal proceedings. She also bore the brunt of regular harassment and death threats. She was married with three sons, Matthew, Andrew and Paul. On the 16th of October 2017, Daphne was assassinated when an explosive device planted under her car seat was triggered just metres from her home. Well, her family has campaigned for years for justice for Daphne and her youngest son, Paul, also a journalist, has written a book about his mother. It's called A Death in Malta, An Assassination and a Family's Quest for Justice and it's published by Cornerstone. Paul, Caruana Galizia, you're really welcome to Dublin. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Listen, tell our listeners about your mum and when you first realised what her job entailed and what it meant to her. She was all the things you described. She was a a really good reporter, revealed really serious corruption in Malta um, and, and was quite famous, actually, the most famous journalist in the country, the first woman to write a column, the first columnist to write under their own name. But of course, growing up, you know, she was she was our mother. We were always with her. You know, she took us to school, picked us up from school. And when the threats against her started very early on, when we were still children, she would find ways of explaining them away. So one day she picked us up from school, brought us home, and we we found one of our dogs lying dead across our doorstep in a in a pool of her own blood. And um, my mother said, don't worry about her. She probably just had snail poison, which is something that had happened with another dog. It was only until much later when I was a teenager that I learned, of course, the dog had had her throat slit by um, people connected to a drug trafficker she was reporting on. The first arson attack on the house, she, she explained the way as her having dropped a lit candle against the front door. But then when we grew up, it became... Like, her journalism would come home to us a lot more. You know, there was another really bad arson attack when I was at sixth form. And by that point, though, journalism was so obviously part of her, almost completely her, that when people used to ask us, why doesn't she stop, don't you tell her she should stop, I thought it would it would just change her too much. It, it She would stop being our mother. And who she was... Do you mind taking me back, Paul, to that awful day in 2017? I think your brother Matthew phoned you yes, to tell you. That's right. So I was in London, um, where I live and work, and it was about 3 p.m. Malta time. My brother was working at home with my mother, um, and then she left the house to go to an appointment at her bank. Um, she didn't get very far really just a few metres down our road. Um, when Matthew heard an explosion, a very powerful explosion, powerful enough to shake the doors and windows of our house. So he ran out, you know, he was barefoot. It was very hot, October still hot in Malta. It was a Monday afternoon, you know, bright sunlight. Mm-hmm. And he saw smoke coming up from one of the fields below our house and, and then saw what he called a fireball, and, you know, he ran towards it, realised it was her car, 
because he got a glimpse, you know, through the fire of, of her number plate. Tried, he tried rescuing her from the car. Of course, you know, it was impossible. And slowly, police officers and doctors started arriving. So, you know, I was an hour behind in London. He called me and he said, um, Paul, there was a bomb in her car and I don't think she made it and come home now. Um, my father and both my brothers picked me up from the airport. And I remember my father telling me, um, listen, um, you know, this one road going to our house, you know, this is an area we grew up, you know, playing in the fields and so on. He said, get ready because it's it's just full of soldiers, police officers and floodlights. And, um, you know, be prepared to see that. And um, it was that night that we immediately started speaking to the homicide detectives on her case, who would later do incredible work in her investigation. She had been threatened so many times, but she was seriously threatened, I think, in the weeks in the run-up to her assassination because she was writing about people in power, wasn't she, and linking them to corruption. That's right. So she spent most of her 30-year career reporting on corruption in Malta. But early on, it was, say, a drug trafficker bribing a police officer or a judge. When Malta's economy grew and globalised much later, especially after we joined the European Union about 20 years ago, suddenly everything multiplied. You know, the bribes became bigger, the corruption Mm. schemes more elaborate. And especially in the last five years of her life, when we had this new government that was very pro-deregulation and privatisation, she found herself, almost without realising, reporting on bribery schemes running into the billions of euros and stretching from Panama to Azerbaijan. What we realised was the really key story that she was working on involved the Panama Papers, so this enormous leak of of um, offshore company data. In that leak, she found that two of the most senior officials in our government, so the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff and the Energy Minister, had set up companies, Panama companies, um, four days after they were elected to government. Um, but she didn't know why they had set them up. A, a later, so this was February 2016, about a year later, she reported the name of another company, one registered in the United Arab Emirates. But she didn't have the owner of that company. She spent that year, so the last year of her life, 2017, trying to uncover its owner. But of course, she was killed in October without ever having got to the owner. One of the things my brothers and I did after her murder was share a lot of that material she had accumulated and was working on with other journalists from from all over the world, really. So first The Guardian and Reuters, later the Italian paper La Repubblica, Le Monde in France, The New York Times. And they formed what they called the Daphne Project um, to, to continue her work. And a year, there's this kind of weird symmetry, a year from, from her murder, these journalists found that that company, the one in the United Arab Emirates, um, was owned by the man who's now charged with commissioning her murder. 
And the picture that emerged is this man was awarded an enormous energy privatization contract and had set up this company, at least in part, to funnel um, kickbacks that he got from that contract to those two government officials through their Panama companies. In the end, with the help of two good Irish lawyers, yes. isn't that right? <laughs> Keelan Gallagher and Tony Murphy? That's right. In London, you managed to get justice for your mother. Tell me in the end yes. how you did that and who has been jailed for her murder. Yes, so so there is this really uh, extraordinary Irish connection in that very early on, we were invited to speak to the board of Reporters Without Borders in London. And of course, we accepted not knowing what would come of it. One of the board members was a really great Irish lawyer called Keelan Gallagher, Casey, at Doughty Street Chambers, who um, really rushed up to us like a hurricane and handed us her card and said, I, I want to help you, please let me help you. And and we, we went to see her in her chambers. And um, pretty soon after that, we came up with the idea of a public inquiry and we, at the time, I remember thinking the chances are really slim, but but we got there actually, and it 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 came to be Malta's first ever public inquiry, that reported in 2021, and the headline was that the state of Malta is responsible for my mother's death. Separately, we had criminal proceedings, and the state of those is this: so three hitmen, the three hitmen have now all pleaded guilty to her murder and they're serving sentences from 15 to 40 years. Um, a middleman um, confessed to his role in the murder and received a complete pardon in exchange for evidence on the hitman and the man who I mentioned who who's charged with commissioning the murder. So we are waiting for the trial of that man and also three men who supplied the bomb. So in all, it took at least eight men to kill her. Does it feel like you have got some justice for your mother now? I think it feels like it feels like we can. I think early on, early on, it felt hopeless. And in a way, it felt so hopeless that we felt the only thing we can do is start campaigning because any other way of living felt too, too strange, too disconnected. And I think the progress we've made so far does make us feel, and really importantly, makes Malta feel, so civil society in Malta, you know, honest police officers and members of the judiciary feel like justice is possible in a country where, until very recently, people felt it's unachievable. Do you think Malta has changed because of your mother's death and the public inquiry since, and I suppose the conviction of those men? I think it has changed. So one of the other findings of the public inquiry was this, that um, the judges said um, Malta was on its way to becoming an entrenched mafia state and it was the murder of my mother that stopped it going down further down that part. So, it, so her murder did mark this point at which people started, at least started thinking, is this the country we want to be? Is this what we are, you know, car bombers of our own people in broad daylight? And I think because the murder was so ugly, so grotesque and, and brazen, 
that it, it, it shocked everyone. One of the most important changes that happened on the day of her murder was this development of civil society, which really didn't exist in Malta. You know, the church was very powerful and the parties were very powerful. But on the day of her murder, a group of women um, gathered together and started camping outside the prime minister's office in protest of his administration of the, of the country. And they began calling themselves Occupy Justice, and they still exist, so they still do a lot of campaigning. And other groups have formed around them, so a rule of law um, campaigning group called Republica, for example. And those are the changes you'd really hope for, you know what I mean? That people start campaigning independently of you, that it's something they also want. It, it isn't just a personal tragedy, that the country is also an injured party. You yourself now, you're an award-winning journalist working and living in London. You've written this great book about your mom. There's a beautiful dedication from you to her at the beginning of it. Was it difficult to write? And what were you hoping to achieve by the book? It was a nightmare to write. <laughs> um, it was it was difficult in every way. It was difficult um, writing about her murder. It was more difficult in a way that surprised me, writing about her early life. So her as a girl, a teenager, you know, her meeting my father and, and, so, and their marriage. Um, everything was hard, you know, having to interview my grandparents, her, her boyfriends. It was very awkward, you know. I mm -hmm. mean, imagine it. You get a call from the son of a colleague of yours who had been murdered and they want to know about her. And that took a long time. I, it took me a long time to accept I had to report on her in that way. Um, and then there were all these legal risks, which we had to consider. But again, we have great lawyers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I, I felt, I felt, I began to feel really strongly it's something that had to be done. So we've spent the past six years in and out of court, and there's been a lot of reporting on her case but in a way that kind of, that reduced her to, to a murder victim, which of course she is. But, um, but she is so much more. And I, I wanted to express that, to say, you know, she was, a, she was full of life. And um, she, she wanted a really good country and she saw journalism as a means to change it. Well, I think she'd be incredibly proud of you, Paul. Oh, also, you, does the loss of your mom get harder as the years gone? I know you have a little boy now. Yes, I it that 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 felt very horrible actually. The thought that he would never meet her, she would never meet him or hold him, or any of her grandchildren actually. They were all born after her murder. I found that very difficult, and I, you know, in the book I say that one day my son will, will find his grandmother in these pages, and that's, that's part of it. I don't know if it gets harder. It's a funny thing. I, you speak to people who've experienced, you know, sudden loss. I always feel it as theft in, in this case. And it's, I don't know, it's like learning how to live without a limb, you know, and sometimes you forget you're missing it, and you, you almost think you have an arm that isn't there. And there are days where you you remember really clearly what what happened. You know what I mean? You go shopping for milk and bread or whatever, and then you think there's something on my mind. What is it? What is it? And it's 
It's my mother was car bombed six years ago. Um, and I, I just think it would always be like that. You know, you just have to learn to live with it. Well, Paul, your book is called A Death in Malta, An Assassination and a Family's Quest for Justice. It's a brilliant book published by Cornerstone. Paul Caruana Galizia, thanks so much for talking to me this morning. Thank you so much, Miriam. Thank you, Paul. Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1.